Hello and welcome to Apocalypse Bunker Discs. Well, let's face it. The desert islands are being swallowed by rising sea levels, and the few that remain are being converted into luxury hotel resorts. The 21st century castaways far more likely to find themselves marooned in an apocalypse bunker. And with those nuclear storms playing havoc with the satellites up above, Wi-Fi rationing will have to be enforced. Enough to download eight songs, one film, and an ebook. I am Oliver Turtle, your subterranean guide, and my lockaway for this edition is Thomas Laroche, who, when asked to describe himself, offered the following. I'm just a representative of research laboratories. Yeah, so I'm joined. keeper of flesh-eating beetles. Yeah, or domestic maculatus beetles. Really, that's really my job, you know. That's really what my I'm, my servitude to society, <laughs> <laughs> to the beetle world. Yeah. More on the beetle world later from La Roche. On behalf of Research Laboratories, he has provided the bunker with a mystery package, which I will be revealing to you slowly throughout the show. It contains several of their releases, including a tape cassette for the artist Sexton Ming, entitled Mad Sod the Scientist vs. Professor Piping Hot. So we'll be sampling that one. Um, the item which first caught my eye is this satanic whoopee cushion. As a five-star customer review on the back, you will not believe the sounds it makes, so stay streaming to hear that one. Several tape cassettes, um, one here by The Creep of Paris in black plastic tape. Supposedly this contains an Elvis Presley seance, so um, looking forward to getting all shook up by that one later on. So for your first choice, you have a Danish musician called Henning Christiansen. Opus 50, Requiem of Art aus Celtic, Fluxorum Organum II. And it's from 1973. A joint record with Joseph Boys with about half an hour kind of odyssey through this very entrancing and dreamlike environment. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. record. It is very disturbing because you're kind of like lulled into this feeling of comfort with the organ motif. Yeah. And then suddenly you have this screaming and it's this dissonance that you get from those. Yeah, absolutely. I read somewhere it was a lot of field recordings, uh, maybe an event, a Fluxus event. They kind of added this into some organ music. And, you know, if you sit with a um, pipe organ, mm -hmm. it's a very kind of overbearing feeling and sound. Yeah, the organ is almost on edge. 
it's almost about to break into something, but it it doesn't. It's just a kind mm. of droning away in the background, and it kind of swallows yeah the other sounds. sounds are like clues. You feel like there's something happening in this environment, but it's quite hard to decode what that is. It leaves a mystery to the to where are the recordings coming from. Yeah, and it's like a kind of constant like deciphering of you know how why and what. When it ends, you've got this feeling like you you've witnessed something, but you don't <laughs> know what it is. It's yeah. like this you've been party to some strange um ritual. Is his wife Ursula? who's also, they, they're all part of the Fluxus movement. She said it was basically a requiem for the role of art in the 1960s. really builds up and then all of a sudden it's actually swallowed by the pipe organ this more spiritual noise or like a symbol of that it happens three times as well the same uh pattern chattering noise is like you're going into the back of someone's like head or yeah it's kind of a kind of inner dialogue almost or channeling you know maybe channeling it's a great cover as well isn't there uh yeah i think it's it could be of the performance in denmark dressed as Clowns, yeah. kind of on this wind-up plinth. It's like a um, an old tin plate toy, almost the Christmas decoration. Because I feel like when I heard that bit, the cover just suddenly kind of made sense for me. Because it was like, oh yeah, this is yeah exactly what's going on here. Bei einer Mumie waren seine Beine mit schmalen Zeugstreifen umwickelt. You can always imagine the organ is the sound of something traveling and like floating through an environment. The source sound, it almost sounds like a very low flying kind of cargo plane that's flying over your head, very close to your head. And uh, apparently Henry Christensen, he lived on uh, the island of Mern. Right. Not the Isle of Man, the Isle of Mern in uh, Denmark, which I think for 40 years, so like most of his life, there's like 10,000 people that live on there as well. Okay, um, pretty secluded. Like I'm imagining the Isle of Mern, which is very mysterious to me, these chattering cafes and mysterious airplanes overhead. Maybe they played his music over the island all the time for, for the rest of the um, population. I like yeah. to think so. Just everybody just walking around. Yeah, in a Henning daze.
It also feels a bit like like a video game as well. Yeah, it's like that. Um, do you remember that old um, program called Nightmare? You used to have a team of kids, and one would wear a helmet, and they would um, have their friends, and they would be telling them, "Oh, you've got to like step. There's a goblin." Well, you've got to step and jump, and you had to do different tasks, but you were completely um, in the dark, basically. Mm -hmm. It was a great TV show. Welcome, Watchers of Illusion, to the Castle of Confusion. Phase with us now, for this is the time of adventure. I, Tregard, issue the challenge. Beyond that portal lies the Dungeon of Deceit which I alone have mastered. But those of you who cross the boundaries of time must master it also. All right then, David. You'll have to leave the objects now. Right. Turn left. You must take some objects. All right, David, take the ruby. And will I take the candle holder or will I take the charm? Try taking the charm. Don't put it in the Don't knapsack. Don't put it in the back. Right. Take the charm as well. Right. I mean, I really hope that your next choice isn't played permanently in a public space. Evil Moisture, the collaboration with Hannah Tarash, and the title Fat Hanaki on Airtube. Yeah. yeah like that, the experience of being like sucked through a black hole or something. Yeah, it's very fast paced. That's it. Yeah. Kind of like the cut-up technique, cutting it up and then, um, and then maybe even cutting it up even smaller, like one-second blasts of mm. who knows what. They're like micro compositions. <laughs> yeah, right. Like a lot of them, they just sound like they took quite a long time to compose, and then you're only hearing like one second. Yeah, it's almost like grindcore, but even shorter. <laughs> The entire thing is the contrast between noise and silence. Yeah. So actually a lot of the CD is actually just the void. So maybe that's the air tube. And then the fat anarchy is the abrasive oral assault that you have. They're like using quite a lot of like TV samples, radio, advertising, and some things which are just incredibly mysterious. I have no idea where they come from. Yeah. But Yeah, Evil Moisture, so he's one of the musicians on this record. Andy Belouse, yeah. And uh, you said he makes a lots of his own like sound-making devices and machines. Yeah, circuit bending, I think, originally. And uh, there's one called a, a filfer. 
choppers, filters, and bat detectors. Those yeah. are three of the ones he makes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's also an, an artist as well. Mostly kind of collages and cut-ups. Yeah, he's a painter. Um, they have like a similar feel to them to the actual recordings in that he's using lots of like magazines and reworking them into these intestines or something. Yeah, yeah. you can feel that <clears throat> it's kind of old vintage pornos. It's kind of hard to decipher when you look at it. I think he adds stuff like, you know, paint, paints over them and adds different mm. things. Yeah. Drawing from different areas. There's this idea of recycling throughout the whole thing. It's yeah. kind of relentlessly reinventing itself as it goes on. And like the, the other musician is really interesting too. You said. Yeah, Hannah Tereshi. I mean, he did some fud stories. He took a bulldozer on mm. into a venue and he dug the stage out with, with a digger or a bulldozer. And he also, I think, was going to light a Molotov cocktail and throw it. Yeah, he used to have a lot of metal and all kinds of uh, kind of oil drums and things like this and throw them about. There's another story of one of them like strapping like a circular saw to his back oh, wow. and almost severing his own leg when performing. And apparently before the bulldozer gig in Tokyo, mm. um, the audience had to sign a disclaimer because oh, right. it was likely that they would be injured at some point. Okay, perfect. And they, they sort of knocked down part of the wall of the venue as well. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> they, they were banned from performing after that for a long time. I think they were quite into, you know, Aishto Zende Neubarten. Yeah. which I never pronounced correctly. They were quite famous for, like, at the ICA, like drilling a hole in the floor there to try and get to Buckingham Palace during the concert. Oh, wow. Okay. But uh, I feel like, yeah, bulldozing the venue is kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's obviously... It's hard to say which one is more extreme, bulldozing or uh, excavating. But well, I mean, I just completing. like... Yeah, I just like the intensity of both of them by the sounds of things. Also, fantastic um, song titles and quite a lot of song titles. Yeah, there are 35 tracks. Mm -hmm. Some of my favorites uh, Atomiki in the LSD, Ant Attack for Sex People, Eat em, Use Gum, Punk Yappy Cutting Tree, My Super Zone, Sonic Bonus, B Airport, and uh, Banky Atmosphere. And then the last four are just called Untitled. Maybe the, the songs had eaten themselves by them. Yeah, they could have just given up or maybe or that. coming up with... Um, <laughs> mm. I like to think that's like the transcendent point in the album where it's just... <laughs> yeah, like anything goes. Yeah, yeah identities yeah. eviscerated. And yeah, I was thinking of insects quite a lot as well, which yeah. I found quite appropriate as you are, of course, in the business of insects to some degree. Yeah, I look after 13 colonies of domestic maculatus beetles, 
or yeah, flesh-eating beetles. Mm. Yeah. And do you have them like all in the same room? Yeah, they're in the same room, but in different colonies. Yeah. Different tanks, boxes, should we say, yeah. Mm. And like, can you hear them when you walk in? Once they get to maturity, adulthood, they, they fly. So you can hear them flying because mm-hmm. they can fly about in the tanks. And yeah, also they pupate through uh, polystyrene. So um, you have to put blocks of polystyrene mm. into it so they can, um, you know, make their way through. And right. um, okay. they can um, shed their outer layer. If you open the lids, you can hear them yeah, making their way through. There's lots of movement in the uh, polystyrene, mm-hmm. yeah. Does it sound like this record in any way? Almost like a, a kind of squeaking, almost. It's a really, really quiet squeaking. Wow, yeah. it must be quite strange. Like having so many individual animals, and yet I guess they must be quite quiet, actually. Yeah. Thinking oh, yeah. About you use them to prepare skeletons for Ye- yeah. museums and... Yeah, normally most natural history museums have colonies of these beetles and they clean skulls and skeletons. I mean, yeah, they eat dead flesh, basically. And they're far more effective than chemicals which don't produce a kind of clean finish or... Yeah, you can um, macerate, which is like the process Mm. of putting a a carcass into like warm Mm -hmm. water and you can slowly work the flesh off like that. But on smaller, intricate things like tiny birds and smaller animals, it's, it's best to use some yeah, domestic maculatus beetles. You don't run the risk of damaging the bone. And have you had the same colony for a long time? I still have the original colony that I first got. The person who sent it to me, they sent the beetles in a 35mm camera pot. I m- managed to grow them to like 13 colonies. So they, they will just replicate and... Yeah, they kind of got about mm. a 29-day life cycle. Really? Yeah. So yeah. it's 29 days, yeah. the colony will almost completely change with like a thousand insects or so. Oh yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, you've got to keep it, you know, it's good to keep the temperature a certain level and yeah. keep them well-fed. Like any species, you know, heat and food is always good to keep, keep um, people happy. go from the extremes of Hannah Matash mm-hmm. to Taylor Swift, the cafe darling? Um, I, just re- I just really like this song by Taylor Swift, if she wrote it. Yeah, Shake It Off, yeah. I think it's a really fantastic uh, pop song, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's very stoic. She has all these people attacking her, and yet she's persisting nonetheless. Yeah, she's just, you know, pushing forward. The brass at the beginning, the saxophone... Uh, to me, it sounds like a, a duck in a pond. Mm-hmm. It was yes. incredibly pompous, narcissistic. 
and it's it's sort of splashing about and it's the duck which all of the other ducks in the pond are trying to avoid at all costs So the album's called 1989, so it's the year of her birth. Right. There's a little bit of esoteria to do with numbers. Before debuting this music video, she put an, a video on Instagram of her pressing the 18th floor button for an, in an elevator. Okay. And it turned out this it was the 18th of August, I think it was, was the release date for the music video. Oh, okay. Maybe it's like Geometria. I quite like the music video that goes with the um, Shake It Off. It's quite fun. Yeah. Yeah, but apparently it took three days to record. Oh, okay. And uh, they, they were very adamant. I think the director wanted her to twerk, but she... Um, there was twerk refusal. There was a bit of twerk refusal. I yeah. think it was, it was trialed and then rejected. I w went to the, the quietest review. I, I was hoping I'd find like a really like cutting... But, that, but actually, they, they also quite liked it. I oh. couldn't find a single negative review. Nobody wanted to go down that route. Oh, wow. Although she did describe it as a perky nuisance in one line. Although it can be a perky nuisance, and you can quite like it for being that as well. Like, like the duck I described in the pond. Yeah. Which the fact saxophone brought to mind. It's still a quite a nice duck, I'm sure. Yeah. Sometimes it's um, people kind of putting a barrier up, isn't it? Because... Uh, but they're really quite nice underneath. It might be the social barrier of the duck, just to, you know, <laughs> so, so he feels like he can go anywhere, you know, in the pond, you know, and people keep clear, but it's probably a good fellow, and, you know, deep down under the, underneath it all. And I suppose, like, with a lot of music, uh, like Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga, because it's social music, you kind yeah. of end up with lots of your memories being entwined whether you like it or not yeah it's definitely being clubbed over your head you can sometimes just put a song on and be like oh i know exactly how i felt in that year or that time of life and it's kind of clever how that's done i feel like when people get older quite often they will listen to music they didn't really like when they were younger just because <laughs> it has this this memory portal for them because really i, I associate that with like cafes on train stations like christmas card shops and the Spotification, if you like, of music, like uh, like Spotify and like streaming and how um, companies kind of know a lot about your musical identity. Yeah. I've always liked this idea that eventually, like, if you go into like a cafe or something, like the cafe will know like the music taste of the people in there or a shop maybe makes more sense so that it will start reacting to that and like playing like an aggregate of the taste of like the, the people who are in the venue. Yeah, maybe that's why they want to collect all this, you know, mm. data and information on everybody, you know, eating its own tail. This um, yeah, idea of consumerism and finding out information to play it all back to you, basically. Auto-consumerism. <laughs> yeah. Well, whereas I guess Taylor Swift is trying to do something which, which will be attractive to a vast slice of humanity just seems like about um just wanting to be liked i mean that's it goes across all things i feel hey 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 just think while you've been getting down and out about the liars and the dirty dirty cheats of the world you could have been getting down to this sick beat my ex-man brought his new girlfriend she's like oh my god but i'm just gonna shake into the 
On YouTube, it has something like 2.4 billion oh, wow. views, which is incredible because I think it must be a large percentage of the human race. Maybe it's just me. Just maybe refreshing perhaps. the video. Yeah, just watching. Maybe, watching. It's, yeah. maybe it's your uh, your colonies. They're all <laughs> yeah, on there, tuning uh, in. Little, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should play them different music to see if they are more productive or less productive. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, I bet there are like certain frequencies which they would. Yeah, they would absolutely. Like. Yeah. Mm. I feel like classical music is always quite good for um, the harmony mm-hmm. of nature. Maybe made it faster, so it's really high pitch. I think they'd appreciate that. Oh. Yeah, they probably mm. work faster. Like Beethoven's fifth, just really. Mini speakers for each colony, and I can yeah. just directly pump it in to different. Yeah, like a call to prayer every morning. I can for for the beetle colonies. I mean, Taylor Swift, when she recorded that, how would she know that a few years later, perhaps her music would be piped into into the insect world? Into the insect world, yeah, will take how, over. Yeah, maybe, you know, I could get hold of her um, entourage, I feel like these people have, yeah. and, uh, yeah, just let them know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it'd be good PR. I don't know who for. <laughs> could work for both of us. Like, the main lyrical idea of, like, having people criticising you, and then... Shaking it's kind of it off, right? Shaking <laughs> it yeah, off. Sh- because it's on such a large scale, because it's obviously a personal song, it's something yeah. quite incredible about that image of you know thousands of people on the internet kind of criticizing one person you know public figures they're kind of yeah like lightning sticks for people's frustrations and people do yeah they project a lot of ills Mm. onto them or non-ills or they're like big fans and you know almost it's um sycophantic like celebrity has also evolved so much over the last 50 years. It's sort of this whole new realm of like <laughs> yeah. huge populations. The, the age of uber celebrity. So you know the Andy Warhol line about 15 minutes of fame? Uh, mm. I saw a line saying in the future everyone will have 15 minutes of anonymity. Yeah, or they want that. They no, probably yes. want that. Yeah, a kind of privacy. Yeah, yeah that, that will yeah. become the next uh, yeah. thing everyone longs for. Mm. You know, we invite surveillance into our lives Mm -hmm. now rather than it being you know a camera up on the wall we kind of you know Mm. have a phone that's got a camera on (laughs) people are very happy to like kind of announce their private lives or which will be interesting in the bunker it'll probably be the the main connection with the outside the other people underground there's a fantastic musical opera by um tomato de plenty of the screamers from los angeles the old synth punk band he made a film it's about him and he's the last man and he's in a bunker and um he has a camera i think he's got like kind of access to tvs and he's projecting his Mm. kind of life in this bunker and his day-to-day and it's a kind of musical many years ago when i was still at the height of my career i was often asked In case you could do it all over again, what would you do different? At the time, my answer was an unconditional nothing. If anyone were to be alive today and ask the same question, I'd confess that yes, had I known then about the guilt and the pain caused by being the sole survivor 
of a mass suicide pact, I wouldn't have hesitated for one split second. I would have joined my fellow men in death. Yet at this junction of my life, there was little else I can do but pay tribute to my country and the proud, fearless people who today can only stand by me in spirit as I undertake the awesome task of preserving what is left of this great heritage. I dedicate these, my memoirs, to this dream of greatness, which I betray as well as salute with my every stolen breath of air and every beat of my aching heart. Sign, tomato to plenty. This has been the real revelation for me on recording all of these episodes. Your next choice, yeah. Marvina Reynolds. Yeah. She's like a cross between uh, Ivor Cutler and Leonard Cohen. Yep. Yeah, that's a great analogy. A lot of her songs, they're like protest songs about food production. Yeah, all kind of um, everyday living, the prescribed way to live. I feel some of her mm. songs are about. And this one you've chosen is it's wonderful, The New Restaurant. I stopped into a restaurant and oh, it was a dream. From a half mile up the highway, you could see the fixtures gleam. They heated up the coffee cups with extra pressure steam. But the food was terrible. The waitresses were charming. They had such lovely eyes. Their smiles all matched exactly and their uniforms likewise. Their hair was piled as sweetly as the topping on the pies. But the food was terrible. The shininess maybe of America and, yeah, the modern modern age. It's all very shiny, but um, mm. once we yeah. get to the substance of things, it's not very um, nice. Well, well, the last line is about all the food becoming plastic and nobody noticing as well, which seems to be probably the most cutting of the song yeah like the new generation not knowing the difference or not knowing the um, trick that's being played i feel like she was quite um in tune she would say with her so her, her parents emigrated uh, from budapest and from russia okay and for some reason she classified them like that and uh, <laughs> but yeah kind of jewish um, socialist background. Yeah, and she had like several degrees from Berkeley. Oh wow! She, she feels that um, well, she probably was blacklisted, so she found it hard to get like a teaching job. And she worked as a steel worker, milliner, doing lots of jobs she didn't really like. On the assembly line during World yeah, War Two and things like this. Kind of blinking bullets, right? And it wasn't until I think she was in her fifties, sixties that she started like recording and performing uh, these songs. Well, yeah. Well, that's always great to see because um, she's lived some life, so she's got a different angle on, I guess, writing, and she's not trying to be, you know, a pop star or just 18 or something and mm-hmm. wanting to have a musical career. She's um, lived life and then saying, hey, these are my stories. It, it's a bit of a naughty word, but there's something very authentic about her. It's like very human and warm feeling. She wants a kind of better world. In an honest way, not in a false charitable way. A lot of love in her, but delivered in a kind of dark way, but saying, let's not be like that. And there are some clips of her playing on TV. She yeah. had uh, a friendship with Pete Seeger, who I think had his own TV show. Um, but yeah, she plays the new restaurant on this show. 
And the thing I found interesting is the audience, they don't laugh. Like when I heard it, I felt like there was a very obvious punchline with, you know, the food is terrible. Yeah. And I thought it was very funny. But the live in the, what, in the 60s, there was just no audience reaction, which I found quite, it actually made it sound, feel like more of a protest song, actually. They must have spent a fortune on the furniture and such, on the placemats and the napkins, just like linen to the touch. So the budget for the kitchen really wasn't very much, and the food was terrible. Another generation will forget the taste of meat, of tomatoes from the garden, and of bread that's made of wheat. And they'll never even notice when it's plastic that they eat, that the food I guess most things are about the delivery. She almost looks quite stern. Yeah, she really means what she says or what she's saying. And she delivers it with a very deadpan face. Mixed underneath it, there's a very funny um, sentiment. The song, New Restaurant, I discovered it on her album, Malvina Sings the Truth. Yeah. And that's got some really other fantastic songs on about yeah. similar things. Great title, like God Bless the Grass. What what have they done to the rain? Yes. Which yeah. has, is kind of a similar feeling to it as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But so she has one, I Don't Mind Losing. Great sentiment. Yeah. I don't mind failing in this world. Are the sons of bitches I don't mind failing in this world Like, like Little Boxes was like quite a pit Like people maybe know her more for that track yeah. Which is quite a, yeah, political in some ways Interestingly she says you know, the separation you had in that period, well, 50s mainly, between the songwriter and performer, it was part of this assembly line idea of separating jobs. So she felt like it was a political statement to do both things at the same time. There's also a great documentary on her, Love It Like a Fool, from the year that she died. It's directed by uh, Susan Wengraff. I was so shy and not pretty in the accepted sense of that period. I had a big mouth, and you're supposed to have a little cupid's bow mouth in those days. I had a luscious mouth and didn't know it. The boys must have known it because I was beginning to have boyfriends then. Bud Reynolds, I guess, was the love story of my life. It's a song I wrote for my husband. He was a trade union and political leader. Bury me in my overalls, don't use my gabardine. She talks about like when she was a young girl 
um, in San Francisco, she would always like be sitting on the steps of her apartment and telling stories to the other children, making things up. And oh yeah, she seems quite a good show person. She's a really good storyteller. Yeah. So she feels like she's been telling stories all her life, and it's all part of the same thing. John? Who the fuck's that? That's a charming greeting, isn't it? Yes, isn't it? Happy bloody New Year, mate. If you come near me in the New Year, I'll tear the nose off your face. The captain. Oh, yes. Maurice Seddon. Or his full name, I have. Yeah. Uh, captain Maurice Frank Henry Urquhart Necom Seddon. Who, who on earth was he? Yeah, he's quite <laughs> a mysterious character, I think. I think he was born into, uh, yeah, quite a privileged background, military. Yeah, ro- royal signalers. Yeah, he ended up um, making clothes that heat themselves up. So you have this collection of tapes of these, they're basically like prank calls. Mm. But they're, they're very, it's, it's hard to tell why he recorded them or what they're for. But apparently they found them scattered around his house and uh, he had lots of radios like greenhouses filled with radios and electronic equipment and stuff like this um, yeah um, all in Datchet so next to the Heathrow airport so the, yeah the planes would be landing on the roof well anyway it's, your sword? it's all very How's your sword? oh it is stolen as I think I probably told you didn't I, I te- think I probably was on the roof what it was stolen by a Dutch TV company Dutch. one of their young boys was it? Now, wait a minute. Is oh, this... Wait a minute. Is this some... Are you recording me? No, I'm, I'm not recording. recording you. No, I'm not recording. I'm recording you. Now, look. Okay, you go ahead and record. Now, tell me. Tell me, tell me more about... Tell me more about this Dutch TV boy and the sword. What are you saying there? That he's what I'm st- saying is when I was on your roof, I saw all kinds of people coming, including the RSPCA, to tell you about your dogs. Well, I'm sure you've got... I'm sure you saw... I'm telling you that when I was there, one had a baby. One had a what? A baby dog. A a Benedict... Oh, your papa dog. I'm not understanding what you're... Your papa dog. A bunnit... And you said, oh, they're just dogs, my dear. It doesn't matter. What is a... They're all eating the the dog that's been born dead. And the placenta, too. Can we concentrate on one thing at the moment? You spoke just now about... We spoke. You spoke about my sword. Now, do you know? Do you know who stole my sword? Do you know who stole my sword? What? It's the person who found all these tapes and uh, put together this uh, this package. Yeah, LP. When they first met him, he was on a motorbike, and yeah, he had the, all these wires from the bike going up into his clothes to keep them warm. Yeah. And he was wearing a tabard, so a sort of ornate, uh, middle ages sort of vest jacket. But it had an advertisement for his repair company embroidered on the front with a phone number for Audiorama. 
And yeah. uh, th there are about 10 pages of liner notes to this album with just endless eccentricities. Yeah, I also heard that the LP and how the tapes were compiled is he kind of built this machine where if someone called him, he could hear them, but he could also block them. So when they were speaking, mm. they would be blocked, but he could he could speak. So essentially, he was kind of just speaking over them. He used a foot pedal. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. kind of a foot switch. Um, you can tell that people were so frustrated because yes. he, he repeats mm. whole sections. I believe there's a piece on there and it's his sister calling him. Cecilia. Hello, how is Cecilia? They don't get on and mm -hmm. I don't think they've got on for years. Well, I'll have to think it out because even if you come here now, you see, I have this paying guest. I have Francois Marigliano. He's coming tonight from Naples. He's been away two days. But, I mean, I can't possibly have you to stay in his room because it's rented. Well, I suppose I can always sleep on the floor in the drawing room or something. Yes, but that's where we eat and where I, I give my only last lesson <coughs> comes here once a week a person and can hardly find you on the floor. Well, I mean, I've been there on the floor in the night and not in the day. He's actually, he's quite impressive. He manages to, well, he's, he's just good at getting his way, actually. He's sort of funny, but at the same time, it's like he's, he's calling, uh, is it the Carson show? Is it Johnny Carson show yeah. in the US? And he's somehow yeah. persuading them to book him on the show. I believe he to, went. And to pay for everything. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's. A, I believe he's just like a really good at like you know forcing his will, you know. Yeah. And he just he's like will not take no for an answer, and he's like, yeah. this is my idea, and this is what's going to happen, and you've got no other um, choice basically. Uh, you know, Madeline filled me in on all of this, but but what is your point? Well, my point is that on the one hand, I'm extremely well known and I've been seen all over the world, but on the other hand. Curiously enough, anomalously enough, I am as poor as a church mouse. I have no money. And this depends partly upon my life's philosophy and partly on the way I operate. I have never made a god of money. I have very little. I'm very much happier and very much less stressful than most people I know who have lots of money. Can you hang on a moment? What are you, give, get to the bottom line. Are you telling me that you need more money while you're here? I'm, I'm saying this. Just as Letterman provided everything for me from top to bottom, everything that I ate and drank and hotel accommodation and tips for the porters of the hotels and tips for the car drivers, I need all that. And furthermore, I can only afford to go anywhere on anybody's television if I am paid on a commensurate basis for doing so. I cannot afford to do it for nothing. The heated clothing is a sort of charity and it has to be supported by my other activities. And a major source of pocket money is television. Right. Now, we might be able to work out a stipend, a daily stipend for you. And, uh, yeah, I think he was on some television programs with his um, heating yes. um, clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like um, to keep you warm all the time. Uh, we have decided to invite back the uh, man who invented electric clothing. Uh, here is a, a bit of a videotape from his first appearance on the program last February. Watch closely. Here it is. Put your left hand. Left right hand there. Oh, how, how on the right? Uh huh. I should really show. How long has this been on? Uh -huh. oh, about the last five Put or ten minutes, I suppose. Just slip that on. Well. Ah! There! Ah! Ah! 
You know, based on that, I don't know why we're having him back. These I call Riesenhandschuhe, giant gloves. And giant gloves. And they're specially for people, as you can see. Those giant gloves come in all sizes? Well, they're, they're just one giant size for people who don't fit into ordinary gloves. <laughs> so it very rarely happens, but you do get the occasional person who literally can't get into any normal glove. I know. And then we move on to gloves. I have a problem sort of like that. <laughs> Doing what I can, Paul. Well then, here's a special pair of gloves. The, the left-hand one is perfectly normal, uh -huh. and the right-hand one, as you see, has been specially made to fit the misshapen hand of a man who had a circular saw accident. <laughs> and hence the letter D for disabled. Ah, I see. Now, I get, I, yeah, well, I, you know, I have not spent a great deal of time in Great Britain, but is, do people wear a lot of electrical clothing over there? I wouldn't say that you will ever find a lot of people using uh, this. Yeah. This equipment is A, expensive. Expensive, custom-made, I would it think. It is custom-built. It mm -hmm. is hand-sewn and hand-made, which is right. terribly laborious, right. terribly te uh, labor-intensive, mm -hmm. and frightfully expensive. But that's what you do and you enjoy it. I, I make these things, I use them myself, mm -hmm. and I sell them to a limited clientele who, in many cases, absolutely absolutely depend on them. Absolutely have to have them. Absolutely, in many okay. cases. <laughs> Rather like saying, do Rolls-Royce sell many of their cars? Of course. No, they I mean, don't. They don't sell many, but uh, yes. the ones they sell... He's so fast and unerring in the way that he speaks that you don't quite think he's mad. No. I think that's why people are so... Because he is so articulate and um, domineering in a way that he does seem... Yeah, you can definitely feel he's got, um, you know, a military background on his kind of delivery. He had lots of cars, of course, like yeah. dilapidated vehicles, and uh, apparently hundreds of freezers as well in the garden, uh, <laughs> just, just storing kind of half-eaten dinners and stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently he had a, a 1930s silver cloud Rolls-Royce. In the 1960s, he had like a, a working television in the back, and he drove all the way to Italy. And apparently this was such a an event to all these small villages he was driving through that whole crowds would assemble to look at this spaceship oh wow that's quite a sight with his heated jacket yeah hopefully he's got you know he's got he, anyone he met he would start selling them this this heated equipment yeah i mean real. he seemed very firm in the idea of it and it would yeah, convince him everybody should have this you know and homeless people and he had a charity set up to provide homeless people and people who required clothing in general to have this heated clothing yeah. was essential. I think in one of those line, conversations, he said they need it and they're going to get it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Sorry to disturb the Sabbath. Something I forgot to tell you. Some weeks ago, whilst driving bath chair number two, not more than a hundred metres from this house, I was assaulted physically by hooligans. Wrong. For this reason, I carry on bath chair number two a life-preserving truncheon, which I completely forgot to take off and transfer back to number one. And that should be hanging in inner tube rubber bands just below the front of the chair. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to check if it's there. Shall I hold on and just keep it and look after it carefully and make sure I get it back in due course? In the meantime, I shall have to cut myself a wooden stick or something and carry that. This feel very voyeuristic, this LP. They just outline 
the contents of his house for the sleeve notes. Like they mentioned polystyrene floating in the bath. Yeah. Because it helped like absorb the, the damp in the house and stuff like this. So it's actually, it exposes him quite a lot. In the inlay, there are some like, you know, there's a kind of timeline of um, photographs of him like in the military when he's younger and it yeah. goes on and then to his kind of like final days of him yeah, looking quite really? disheveled. And um, there's a great picture of him because he had a sidecar as well, a motorbike with sidecar, a force. Yeah, real, Absolutely. Yeah. Captain Maurice Saddam. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you would um, know if you had met him. And we have reached the end. Please turn over. Please turn over to the other track. Another immovable force who um, mm, yeah. was bold in the face of, well, abuse, actually, <laughs> was uh, your next selection. Yeah, Suicide, a LP, yeah, which is them live in Brussels and Berlin. You know, fantastic duo. And uh, so... It's 21 and a half minutes in Berlin. Yeah. 23 minutes over Brussels. And uh, it refers to basically the amount of time that they survived on stage before the crowd kind of overtook them and booed them off. Yeah. Even in the in the US, they, they found that the audience just wouldn't accept them. And they'd basically turn into these huge riots because their music was so abrasive. Alan Vega, the lead singer, would prowl around the stage and people would spit at him, throw objects and start fights with him. Yeah. And it's interesting because they were both quite glamorous yeah, in, in their image. I mean, they yeah. had sort of, yeah. lot, you know, like pandarai makeup, lots of leather. And like, he was famous wearing this bandana. And He also wore a wig as well. Um, yeah, Alan yeah. Vega had a wig on. Oh, yeah. like a prince-esque kind of back home he's, quiff. He's got a lot of swagger as well, I feel, Alan Vega. Yeah. I heard he kind of modelled himself on Elvis Presley, though. You know, very self-assured on stage. And Basically, El Elvis as a kind of perverse, dark side of Elvis Presley reinvention. Yeah, kind of a car boot sale version. Of When they came over to Europe, they had like high hopes for being kind of accepted. Right. Uh, so th these were like two of the first gigs on that tour. They were supporting The Clash and Elvis Costello. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> God. So th when they went on, of course, these the audiences weren't quite equipped for this sound assault. You can hear them chanting Elvis, Elvis for Elvis Costello on the Brussels side. Love you. 
And at the end of that, you can hear uh, somebody steals the mic, takes the microphone away from them for the song Frankie Teardrop. Yeah. Working in a factory for seven to five. He's just trying to survive. Let's hear for Frankie. Frankie, Frankie. Frankie, Frankie. stage and all cheer at the end yeah i think the audience might be shouting go home or something like this i i just kind of like this record for the um audience participation yeah and with the lighting they sound extremely menacing even in the context of like when this was done i feel like it would sound more menacing i guess people probably hadn't seen much Mm. or anything quite like this at the time also frankie teardrop lyrics are very intense as well you can tell they're actually upset that the audience is interrupting the song. Beforehand, he says, you know, this is a song about you, the person yeah. next to you, everyone in this room. And yet they steal the microphone from him. And eventually he gives up because he feels like they're terrible people. He always seemed to deliver it quite dramatically. Basically a nightmarish spin on 50s pop music. Yeah. Something like Cherie Cherie, mm. 50s love ballad, putting this really kind of dark, throbbing bass lines and these very ethereal synths laid on top of it. Glasgow, an audience member threw an axe at them on stage and right. uh, they went down to Crawley Town in Sussex, where I was born, and uh, apparently a member of the uh, National Front uh, broke his nose on stage as well. Oh, God. So, yeah, there we are. 
Did Alan fight back? I saw a, another documentary recently uh, with Michael Gyre of Swans, and he saw them very early on, and people would spit at him in his face. And apparently he would take the spit and he would rub it in and say, you know, give me more. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the ultimate subversion is to accept it sub- and then say, yeah. it doesn't impress me. Yeah. And apparently he went on this tour of Europe with a purple sparkly suit and it would turn black every night from sweat and spit and oh, beer. Wow. and Yeah, real ride. I did hear he used to take a chain on stage to protect him, basically. Like a big, you know, hefty chain to him. Right, like a teddy boy again. Yeah, Yeah, stop the um, audience attacking him Mm -hmm. or keeping them at bay until Mm -hmm. they wrapped up what they were doing. tape delay which he has the slap back yeah is very much his instrument in a way yes yeah. like he was just an expert in manipulating that mirroring of sound the echo yeah you know very minimal things can really um deteriorate over time or they don't hold attention or it doesn't have an intensity or but i always find suicide still you know very minimal but yeah. it's still held in there. I did see them at the, the Barbican just before Alan Vega died. Yeah, how he was had, that? He had a walking stick on stage, and I think he's wearing the dark glasses. But even then, the sonic experience, it was like very low and very high, but with very little kind of mid-frequency. So it was very difficult to discern which songs they were actually performing. Right. Because it was sort of out of your hearing range. Yeah. Barbican is concert, so people sit down. And uh, there are actually people heckling the stage from where I was sitting. So even after they'd been established for, what's that, 40, 50 years, this guy was shouting, play some suicide songs. Right. Like, just in the row in front of me. Well, I'm glad Um, he still had it in him, even to the the end, you know. Did you say that you you worked with the Sexton Ming? Yeah, I released two tapes by Sexton. Yeah, man, I I put some tapes, his stuff in there for you as well, man. releasing hopefully in the new year a tape by time mouth electron which is um was recorded in cairo yeah which are sort of field recordings in egypt 10 or 15 years ago mm-hmm. and then also another tape by an american fellow called josh peterson and a lathe cut um seven inch by evil moisture who we spoke about earlier ah yeah 
mm -hmm. by Andy Belus, which comes with a um, latex rubber hand on the front of it. Right. Can, can you wear it? Or is it... It's no, it's like a kind collage. of um, joke shop. Well, it's been cast by him. He he made right. the, these latex hands. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a kind of prop. It just came out of making music mm -hmm. and going, okay, well, you might as well release your own music at this point or release people that you like. This is mostly kind of analog releases, aren't they? Like mostly tape and vinyl, like limited editions as well, like... Yeah, it's mainly because of financial embarrassment. Yeah, I yeah. grew up using tapes and recording on tape machines, so I just mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, stuck with it. It's me being stubborn. Like the Creep of Paris as well. This is like one of your main... Um, yeah. Who, yeah. Who is the Creep of Paris? Uh, I'm unsure, you know. The person just kind of, you know, submits work and then it, you know, I just release it. Um, I, I guess it's a few people, maybe. Yeah, the tape that I put in is an Elvis Presley seance, where they try and evoke right. Elvis Presley. I'm speaking to Teresa Carey, who is the actual lady who's going to take part tonight. Teresa, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, what would you like to know? First of all, how old you are? I'm 30. And so how old, how old were you when nine. you were first an Elvis fan? I was nine, nine. So. Yeah, yeah. And you became interested. Why? Why? I don't know. It's difficult to say why. I was at a friend's birthday party playing Pass the Parcel and I won a record and it was an Elvis record. So literally from that moment onwards to the present day? Yeah. They, it was a, I was going to outgrow it. It was a stage I was going through. My parents said, oh, we all outgrow it, you know, when you're nine. And uh, when we tell you about this later on, you'll say, oh, I never said that and I never did that. But uh, as you can would you say that what I'm trying to get to is the fact that you must represent what is termed the fanatical Elvis freak, which Not I don't freak. No, I don't no. mean that in a condescending fan. way. Yes. A, a yes. fan to the yes. utmost extreme, yes. Yes. which is why, why you, I believe you were asked to come tonight. Yes. yes. When you were asked to come, why did you say yes? First of all, I said no. No, but the, it's, I've always been interested in, you know, I'd like to believe in this. I believe in life after death. And if there's any way that we could get through to Elvis, then I'd love it. It is exactly 10 o'clock on a Tuesday evening. There are 15 people in the room, 10 of which are reformed in a semicircle directly in front of Carmen. This is at her request, as she seems to require this to generate the full power of the mental communication that she's trying to build up at the moment. Can I ask where the TCB ring is now? It's in a safe or in a bank. Who's got it? Which which one do you feel like you're most pleased about like, of the oh, solo yeah. releases you've done? Um, I quite like the release I did, Spiritual Enlightenment through Inactivity, which is under my own name. But it's like choral music. And it's just, that piece just came out by chance. And right. it's just a tape loop of this kind of 
chor- like a choir mm. singing like. So both sides of the cassette continue infinitely in this way, and um, mine came with an insert and a section of 1950s blue velvet autocloth, complete with a gold sort of tassel trimming, and um, it indicates at the bottom of the sleeve notes that you should file under self-help. Somebody who used tape quite a lot was your your next selection, Gedalia Tazatas. Yeah. His first album was called Diasporas. And uh, it's from 1979. Lots of tape loops and kind of ethnic singing, sampling, Parisian folk songs. How, how did you encounter this? I was living in Paris and there used to mm. be a shop there, Bimbo Tower, which basically sold all kinds of experimental music and just, I was just amazed. This is amazing. And I thought, well, this is more amazing. It came out in 1979. Yeah, and then just like went on some like mad hunt for um, all kind of Gardelia Tazartes music. It really hits you with yeah. this, this looped choral phrase, isn't it? Which it's almost like a, a seesaw back and forth. Yeah. So his, his background, I guess, is, is quite important to understanding his music, I feel. That he has like Turkish and Jewish descent. And that I think he spoke like Ludino, which is like a Spanish Judaic language. There are different types of singing which he channels. And uh, in interviews, he actually describes the singer in the third person. Like he said, well, that's Gadalia singing that channeling different personas and maybe different strands of his background and other backgrounds as well around Europe, the world in general, collages of different time periods. and yeah, I feel like this work is like visionary. It's so diverse and like where he's pulling all of these, um, as you said, kind of channeling. It's almost like speaking in tongues at some points. Mm-hmm. 
I guess there were some, you know, people making, especially in France, like Pierre Henry and Pierre Schaeffer, the music concrete stuff. But yeah, to really make this whole piece and put it all together and it just be like, you get quite lost in it. Yeah, it's like very mm -hmm. immersive, really well put together before the 80s and, and on tapes, I imagine, beyond yeah. a reel to reel. Yeah. Another thing which really came out for me is the idea of ritual, chanting, and of course, these repeated phrases. Uh, and then he uses the kind of chants on the tape loops to create this strange synthesis of the ancient and then the new at the same time. Yeah, this is, right. yeah. And again, kind of him doing versions of other cultures. So I guess there's a bit of appropriation going on, but it's yeah. highly personal and it's a very much a kind of artistic filter that he puts on as well yeah so it doesn't feel uncomfortable that he's doing these no, things i feel like it's his life rather than just oh this looks interesting from this culture and i'm just going to pick it out and just mm -hmm. identify with it or something i think mm. he's coming from a really personal place and mm -hmm. his voice is used a lot in it his own chanting and uh, voice yeah. On the liner notes of this album, they're written by a kind of philosopher, an activist, a Glucksmann. The first line is, uh, Gedalia is a nomad. Okay. And there's this, apparently this is something which has always been attached to his music. It's his records being a journey through different uh, environments and cultural identities. Because he uses the, the Jews harp. So he says, in Italian, the Jews harp is called uh, Schiassia Pensari, which is the fighter of thoughts. And I find it quite similar to what I want to do with my music, not mm. to provoke thoughts or meditation, but rather to annihilate all reflection, all ideas, actually. Expel the clouds off our heads with a breeze that would blow them away. Rien qu'au soleil silencieusement, l'alambic. Rien qu'au soleil silencieusement, le encore des bébés. Rien qu'au soleil silencieusement, ceux qui s'aiment sans foutre. Rien qu'au soleil silencieusement, le encore des bébés. Nothing but the sun. Yeah, it's almost like a, a North African chanting aligned from one of the French symbolist poets, possibly, which he repeats on top of that, with like a more and more aggressive delivery on top. Coincidences are what I'm searching for, in a way. Uh, serendipities more than harmonies. Like an unplanned harmony that would happen despite everything, despite oneself. A chance that a roll of the dice will never abolish.
He's a very charismatic speaker, I found, in these interviews. Uh, great storytelling as well. Yeah, he's good at kind of philosophizing his yes. music, actually. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Who knows, right? Except him. Tiffany, I think we're alone now. Very, very appropriate. So this would be your your, your companionship. In the bunker, yeah. Yes. This on repeat for two days. And then I can go back to the other choices. Yeah, just another song I really like. Also, there's a great documentary made called I Think We're Alone Now about Tiffany fans. This is a must. They're fans of Tiffany really big time. Former pop sensation Tiffany Darwish, actually I have her last name here, has been followed by one stalker for 11 years. As a 16-year-old, she was forced to get a restraining order against Jeff Dean Turner. They have my whole name in there. Then a 35-year-old, uh, yeah, I was 35 then when that happened, fan who began pursuing her after kissing and hugging her at a concert. Didn't happen quite like that. <laughs> then one day, she saw him outside her house. I was a little freaked out, to say the least, says Darwish. Whatever, <laughs> laugh, yeah. I sat in the corner saying, close all the windows. Now she's back in Southern California, and so is her stalker. <laughs> she says, I have to be real careful. And I talked for at least like seven hours on the phone. The, the, the difference between me and a stalker um, is uh, they don't truly love, uh, love the individual. There's not one thing on Tiffany that I do not love. I mean, theoretically, I love her down, clear down to her bone marrow. Tiffany, I mean, she's she's kind of a one-hit wonder of the time. I see recently she actually re-released I Think We're Alone Now on YouTube. So they redid um, the uh, audio and she's in the video. And she, I think she's kind of walking about Los Angeles. It just kind of sounds like someone's put a doorbell in it. Like it's ringing over the top of the um, original track. It's quite interesting. thing that really uh, caught me was how, to, to begin with, she did a tour of shopping malls. <laughs> and the beautiful you celebrating the Good Life shopping mall tour. 80s. Um, it started off in the Bergen Mall in Paramus, New Jersey. It's a strange environment. Too. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's very plastic, but, uh, you know, that's fine. 
you know and mm-hmm. i wish that happened now actually that you could or do a tour of shopping malls i mean i would have liked to have seen suicide play in the, the county mall shopping yeah. mall in uh, crawley that would be great that's where they went wrong yeah forget and um, costello and supporting yeah. the clash <laughs> and all that that rubbish the cathedrals of uh commercialism late capitalism so in a way tiffany was the the hymn yeah i would love to do a tour of fish and chip shops i really want to play fish and chips shops across the uk people are eating their supper you know Mm. just set up in the corner then they could go back and forth to the bar and the sound of the the fish and chip fryer in the background kind of steamy atmosphere yeah i mean they they could throw chip forks at you if they were unimpressed but that wouldn't yeah they just bounce off really wouldn't they unless they threw a, like a cord at you that would get a bit <laughs> yeah. of savaloy uh, have you thought about how you might decorate the apocalypse bunker there's like a stock mid-century functional aesthetic oh, it, to most um, of them yeah mid-century functional is fine I okay think, well, yeah. we'll, we'll put in like the stock um decor for all the apocalypse bunkers then but you do have a nice cushion that you've brought with you today oh yes the satanic whoopee cushion which is a musical object in itself are you interested in the occult eudosimus ruba presents the satanic whoopee cushion a five-star custom review you'll not believe the sounds it makes file under cheap spray paint so so here we have a devilish red whoopee cushion with a, a pentagram emblazoned in black spray paint on the facade. Going to blow it up now. So that's nice and plump now. You can see the pentagram is really busting out of the shell. Now let's um let's hear it then, shall we? Satanic whoopee cushion. Well, it did have a slightly kind of beefier, deeper tone to it. I can um, I'm going to prepare one more for you. Okay, let's count down, or should I say, across. Six, six, six. I mean, it started quite conventionally, and then it really kind of grew into the roll. The gates of Hades flying off there. Well, I suppose I've, I've got to do this in, in the threes, haven't I? So let's, um, one, one last time for good luck, or bad luck as it may be. It's funny, if you look down the gullet of this thing, it has sort of an electric pink um, inside situation, almost like a, a living being. It's quite strange. Um, I want to be transparent with you with this. I'm, uh, I'm not sitting on it. I'm um, sort of leaning it on my shoulder and then pressing down with the other hand, much like a violin. So here we go for the, the final explosion. Okay. <laughs> Something else that's quite occult is uh, your, your choice of film for The Bunker by uh, Jean Rollin, The Naked Vampire. One of my favourite film directors. Yeah, very, very campy, mm. uh, erotic, arty horror films, a lot of them. Yeah, it's kind of and surreal. Surreal. Mm-hmm. The majority of his films are the vampire something. Uh, this one, The Nude Vampire, it's quite, it's quite profound. It sides with the vampire. It's kind of giving oh, a defense yeah. of the underdog against the people who are trying to cure them, if you like. That was his personal thing as well in a lot of his career, mm. to side with the underdog against the mainstream with his films and just do what he wanted to do. Uh, there's an interesting Freudian thing going on in this film of the son infiltrating the strange occult practice of his father. <laughs> You were at the Ile Saint-Louis tonight. You mean your private club, don't you, Father? 
I wanted to visit it. I've told you before not to meddle in my affairs. It's so simple. You have a few friends to a party at the Ile Saint-Louis. You've got a naked girl for their amusement. Well, I have had enough. I'll find out what really happens when they get together down there. What? Animal men? A young girl? What are you talking about? She could be a robot. That explains how come she's invulnerable. She put her hand on my cheek. I touched her. I know she can't be a robot. Who's the girl you have here? And who are the freaks that kill themselves and smile when they do it? And most important, why the hoods when she goes by? I'm glad your questions are so precise. I think his mum used to hang out with um, Bataille. So, yeah, Georges Bataille. Yeah, the story and, of the eye. Yeah, and they used to have liaisons. Like kind of early, surrealistic, pornographic short novel. Yeah. Eggs and eyeballs, that was like the fetish this character had. Being influenced by someone like that, maybe when you were younger, makes a lot of sense. The Naked Vampire is very visually engaging. An incredible opening scene to that. Coloured fluids. Oh, yeah. There's all these coloured fluids and people are wearing um, kind of hoods on there. Yeah, lots of the time they're wearing hoods so that the vampire won't see them. The the coloured fluids, these vials, they start sort of shaking side to side. Yeah. Sort of very suggestively. Yeah. uh, (laughs) He's very suggestive in his films, yeah. Sort of gauze, veiled outfits. Yeah, definitely. Inexplicable close-ups on nipples for like five seconds and then it will go back to the, the scene. Radamant is trying to find out what it is that makes her immortal. Robert is dead? But how? Last night he was killed at your father's command. That's the signal. She is liberated. Out in the park you will find the one who can reply to all your questions. What you have seen and what you will see are only partly reality. Pierre, listen to me. I will guide you. The time has come for you to acquire knowledge. this ring and pass through the curtain. Another one. Many others will arrive here in the times to come. They arrive at intervals of weeks or months. Or even after many years. You and I will be here when they arrive. There's this scene at the end where like the guards to this vampire realm this sort of old couple sitting at a desk gossiping, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> having a, you know, tea and biscuits, maybe. Yeah, you know, having just tea and biscuits. And they, yeah, yeah. And they're like a bureau desk in front of these red curtains, just yeah. till the end of time. Like the scene at the end, I think, might have been an influence on Twin Peaks later on with this sort of red curtain, which is going back towards the, the realm of the vampires. Yeah. When they go through the curtain, they're sort of on this pebble beach and they're all frolicking in the surf yeah and I, I remember there's this one character who's very glamorous with like a red bob fringe and yeah he's very pointy perspex nipple applique inexplicable flamboyant flourishes <laughs> yes. which are of course very entertaining yeah i do have this great lp actually that's just the um songs from genre lynn films 60s psychedelic sounds
your literary choice mm. for the bunker, 1991. On the surface, a bleak choice to provide you solace in this confined environment. It's a May My Piss Be Gentle by Mark Lowe. Yeah, I discovered this book through the publishing because I had some other books by that publishing house. And then, yeah, I have another book called 120 Pigs and Me, which is of similar content. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought if I was in the bunker, I could just dip in and dip out. It's not one long... No, there's a collection of poetry and they tend to be very cynical, dark, without hope. Like Lots of them are referring to childhood being at school and feeling alienated and romantic failures. And there's one line that says the school resembles a crematorium. You yeah. may as well have a funnel on top of it and <laughs> stuff like this. Yeah. And uh, when I was looking you know, on Google Books, they highlight the words which are most used. Arse, butty, crematorium, screaming and uh, chip. Okay. Came up oh, as, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very down to earth, the book. Working jobs, you don't really want to work. And and also for someone to decide just to write those things rather than any points of happiness or... Gleams of light. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. it, or hope. If you had it in the bunker, like any romance you have of the outside world, you can just refer to that and go, no, no, I'm... I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to back and listening to Tiffany. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to spin some Taylor Swift. It's yeah, a, it's not the most positive book, but... But it is, in a way. Yes, yeah. It's so negative, it's positive. It's yeah. quite uplifting, you know. It's, you know, as I always say, you know, it could always be worse. You know, you know. Yeah. The cliche saying, it can mm-hmm. always be worse. Feeding the Ducks by Mark Lowe. She drags the pushchair over the waste ground towards the lake. The kitty screams as someone's dogs run around barking and shitting licking each other's asses, jumping up trying to lick his face. At the water's edge, she gives the boy the bread. Here, she says, zipping up his anorak. Just stop fucking crying, can't you? While behind her, on the edge of the estate, a bunch of older kids smash up an old Datsun. She hears the windscreen go. Sitting down beside him, she lights a fag and stares out over the water at the busted supermarket trolley, rusting, its little grey casters covered in weed and foam. The water's orange, the fish are dead, and she hates this place. Feeling sick, she stands, grips the back of the pushchair, opens up her purse, and carefully counts out the four pound coins and fifty-eight pence that she has to last to the end of the week and prays to a god she doesn't know that she isn't pregnant again. But she is, and two weeks later they put her inside for trying to stab a policeman. Well, well that brings me to the, the final question. If you had to have a message for the future, supposing you're discovered in the bunker and your skeletons have been um, probably very well prepared by your colony of beetles, the beetles or the insects will inherit the earth. That was the sound of a Thomas LaRoche cassette titled House Dust Number One. This has been Apocalypse Bunker Discs.
For more from Thomas Laroche, please visit researchlaboratories.tumblr.com. If you too would like to brainwash people with your underheard kind of music, then please email apocalypsebungadisks at gmail.com. This is Oliver Turtle leaving you now. I must attend to this satanic whoopee cleanup operation. <laughs> <laughs>